Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. It's good to see you all. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll just jump right in. Father God, thanks for the opportunity for us together. We pray that you would bless our time in ways that you think are appropriate. Help us to learn from this portion of Scripture what you would want us to learn. Help us to be attentive both to um, what kind of truth you are revealing in context of the family stories of Abraham and his descendants, and help us to also discern the way in which this truth intersects with our lives. Speak fresh words into our lives from the Scriptures. Help us to root our lives in the way you've revealed yourself and just have open ears and all of what that means. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, these uh, I have a question for you. It's one of those questions that makes me wish we were all sitting around a table. We're not, unfortunately. But imagine we are. How are you? Give me a word to describe. Like, it's middle of the spring. Some of y'all, you know, you, you full-time jobs. Maybe you've got kids at home. Any number of different things. Give me a word that describes you like your current either like feeling or mood or whatever. Blessed. Blessed. Now everybody who's feeling really bad is not going to feel like they can say it. But thank you. I'm glad you're feeling blessed. No, good. Okay, what else? Worried, stressed. Okay, yeah, no doubt. Worried, stressed, and excited. So a lot of like blood pressure rising in various ways. Okay, worried, stressed, excited. What else? (laughs) I feel you. The last couple of days, so I have... I probably talked about them more than I realized, but I have a couple of little kids, and they're just, kids are so, you know, loud, and they bounce off the walls, and I'm like, I'm going to smile, because I want you to keep your joy, but man, I feel like Eeyore right now. When is bedtime? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. What else were there? I think there was a couple others. I didn't hear them. Behind. (laughs) As in trying to catch up with the work that needs to be done, the commitments that have been made, all these sorts of things. Okay. Either that or you're thinking about your backside. I assume you meant trying to keep up. Maybe, maybe people, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, anything else? Thankful. What's that? Thankful. Thankful, good. And we all would be, um, probably if we, if we were able to get our minds looking in certain directions. Okay, good. Excellent. All right, uh, well, a couple other questions to prepare us for the text today. We're going to follow our typical path of we're going to talk through the text, make sure we kind of get our bearings on what we're looking at, and uh, understand the story on its own terms, and then we're going to see if we can grab some lessons from, uh, from these various characters. We're going to look in the back part, in the takeaway portion, at some lessons from the different characters, what we learn from their lives about our life with God, and then we're just going to ask, what are some things about God that we see in these stories? We're studying the part of the story that's devoted to Isaac. Uh, it's shorter than most of the other people in the family. I mean, most of the other people in the family get like, you know, multiple chapters and a lot of different narratives. Isaac's is pretty tight. So we're going to look at the events surrounding his, um, his entry into the, uh, the narrative as a central point. So like I said, we're going to talk it through. Then we're going to ask, what can we learn? And then we're going to uh, about life with God. And then what, what do we learn about God by looking at these things? So here are the two questions I'd like to ask you and give you some time to think about. The first one is, what have you learned lately about life with God? either from your own experience or by watching somebody else and their interactions with God. So I'm going to give you a minute or so to think about that, and I'll go ahead and give you the second one as well. We'll give you a couple minutes to think about them together. 
What attribute of God, and don't get hung up on that, hung up on that word, I just mean an attribute is just a word that truly describes God. So it might be his grace, or it might be his uh, power, or it might be his um, you know, uh, mercy. It, it could be anything. So what attribute of God have you been thinking about most lately? Um, and then maybe why? And if your answer is, to be honest, I haven't really been thinking about anything in particular lately, then also give yourself some time to think about why not? Why haven't I? So those are the two questions. What have I learned recently about life with God? And what is it about God? What truth about God have I had in my mind over the last few weeks? Give you a couple minutes to think on those things and then we'll talk together. Okay, hopefully that's enough time to give you a little bit of space to think. Uh, I wouldn't mind if you wouldn't mind hearing from some of you on a couple of these questions or on these two questions. So first one, what is it that you've learned about life with God? Either from your own recent experience or maybe reading the Bible, maybe a sermon you heard or lesson you heard, maybe watching a friend or a person that you're aware of walk with God. What were some of the things that that you uh, thought of and wrote and came to mind for you? Yes. Um, For about the past year, I had been praying for um, a medical problem that I have. Okay. Okay. And I kept praying, I know you're going to do it, God. I just don't know when. So you've been praying for a year, you say, for an answer to a medical problem. Got the answer this past week and have a path forward to getting it fixed. And you say, she says she kept praying through it saying, okay, Lord, I know you're going to answer it, but I just don't know when. Okay. Yeah. We've seen that in Genesis a few times. Okay. What else? So put, put, putting that in kind of the form of a principle, God answers. It just takes a while sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Don't we all? Yeah. Okay. Yes. God's always there. He's always there. Okay. Okay. Took a year. Okay. Almost lost your son. Took a whole year, and you what you experienced through that whole thing was God is always there. Okay. Good. What else about God are we learning? Yes, in the back. After the two young men from Joplin that passed away on the same day, it was a reminder to me about how short life is and yet we still have an impact no matter how long we work. Yeah. What's that? Diana, what's the last thing you said? Yeah, life is short, but uh, even when it gets cut short, we can still make an impact. He has made an impact. Man, I'd never heard this kid's name. And I know more about the Spencer Nicodemus than the other one, but and I hate to even say the other one. I wish I knew his name too. I just have some friends who are, what's his name? Daniels. R.J. Daniels, yeah. I have some close, close friends who, have, um, who were close to the Nicodemus family. And man, some of the stories coming out of there are powerful. Powerful. Um, yeah, okay. What else? What are we learning about life with God? Yes. God can use our pain for good in our lives and the lives of others. Amen. Is that something you're, you don't have to elaborate? You're learning that personally or by observing somebody else? Learn it personally. Okay. All right. Yeah. If you walk with God, it's easier to see his blessings. And if you don't, the world is dark. I like that because, you know, so the primary theme of Genesis is, especially this part we're studying, Genesis 12 through 50, is God has promised to bless 
this family. And he has promised that he will bless the whole world through this family. And so the word blessed, remember, just means that that's, you do good for someone. So God has promised to do good to this family, Abraham and his descendants, and through this family to do good to the whole world. And I like the way you put that, because you didn't say, if you walk with God, then you'll get the blessing. Now, that may be true at times, but what you're saying is, if you walk with God, then you'll see the blessings that are there. And one of the consistent themes that we've seen in this book, and we'll see it again tonight, is that even when the people seem like there's nothing in them that would cause God to say, I'm going to bless you some more, he still does it if he said he would. And it's about, it's about the opening of the eyes. Yeah, okay, good. And indeed, yeah. Close your eyes, it gets dark. Okay, and then Mary, was your hand up too? Um, we just recently saw the movie The Shadow. Okay. How difficult forgiveness is, yeah. Okay. How many of you have seen it since it came out? Okay, yeah. I know, I think last week we talked about it a bit. I don't know if Mark has seen it. He said he was going to be there on opening night. I don't know if I haven't got I don't even think, I don't even think I've seen him since then. Um, but I'm interested. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go uh, check it out. It's been a long time. I don't even really remember the details of the, the book. So that's always great when you read the book and it was cool. And then it was a long enough time in between that you forgot all the details. So, okay. All right. Good. So the other question, just real briefly here, I want to get to the text here pretty quick. What, what truth about God or what description of God or what attribute of God has your mind and heart been drawn to recently? What have you been thinking about? His immensity. His immensity. I don't hear that one often. Yeah, his immensity. It's this, it's, so immensity means like he fills space with his presence. He just is big. Yeah, it's, it's, this is, I, I don't know if I've heard anybody mention the attribute in a, like in, in years, interesting. Okay, his immensity. I love it. Good. What did you say, Claire? Forgiveness. forgiveness. His forgiveness. Yeah. Okay. And there's always a story behind that, huh? Yeah. Amen. Um, okay. Good. Who said that? Where was that? Yes. Okay. Excellent. We'll talk. His grace. Good. Who am I that he is mindful of me? I like that. That Psalm 8. Who am I that he is mindful of me? Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, I got a, I got a, prof- I, one of the guys, I, I almost said, I have a professor. He was my professor. I guess now he's a colleague. Actually, he's my boss. So my boss will often do this thing in class where he'll, usually you stand in front of a whiteboard when you're teaching, you know, and he'll, he'll talk about how each of us is just a speck, just a speck. And he'll take a little marker and he'll put a dot and he'll say, that's not you. You're a speck on that speck. <laughs> and yet, like you said, God loves me never ceases to amaze when you stop and think about it. I don't often like pay individual attention to every ant that walks across my driveway. And yet the size difference, the immensity difference is uh, certainly uh, deeply different than that. So analogy there. What got me thinking about it was just you could take a subatomic particle on one side of the universe and then another one on the other side of the universe and God knows where both of them are. It's crazy. And everything in between. Yeah, okay, yeah. Something like thinking about God, good, God and sub, subatomic particles at the same time. Excellent. Anything else? Any others? His goodness. Oh, who's, where'd that come from? Did you guys both say that at the same time? Okay, goodness. Man, this I think is at the heart of it. I often think this. If I really believe that God is good, unquestionably good, then it will never be hard to trust him. You know? If he's good, I think we are asking that question so much more than we even realize. Man, what a good word. Okay. 
Yeah. His pursuit. His pursuit. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be one thing if he stood in the corner and said, I'm here, come get me. But he doesn't, man. He comes and gets us. Okay, good. His holiness. Yeah. His holiness. He is fundamentally different. This is actually the word that the Old Testament and the New Testament probably too, although I've not looked at the numbers. Holiness is the attribute of God most frequently mentioned in the Old Testament. The single is more mentioned than his grace, than his mercy, than his justice, than his love, his holiness. And the reason why is because if you're going to think about God rightly, you have to start by recognizing that he's not like you. He's different. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. He forgives where you wouldn't. He pursues where you'd drop it. He is different. He is other than us. Yeah. Uh, I've been studying Daniel's prayer. Okay. And throughout it, he says, we bear your name. Mm. That's a big issue. Mm-hmm. To bear his name. Yeah. Yeah. Among the crazier decisions I think God has ever made, one of them is that he allows, he at some level stakes his reputation on people like you and me. Okay. Man, I could do this all night. Okay, let's, uh, yes. He's honorable. He's honorable. Man, another one that doesn't get often mentioned. So what is honor? Honor is when you treat something the way in which it should be treated. That's what honor means. So to give honor to something is to say, this is how much you're worth. And so I will, I will like act towards you in a way that is equal to what you're worth. So the Bible says, honor your father and mother. You're the person that brought me into the world, and as such, you deserve a certain type of treatment. And so for God to be honorable is a way of acknowledging that like he is actually above all and therefore deserves treatment that, is, that would only be appropriate for one who is above all. Like, so an honorable, to live honorably on the way out is, again, to treat everything appropriately and to see God. I like that. Okay. Like I said, I could do this all night. Wonderful. Okay. And if there's something I could suggest of you, in addition to just regular reading of the Bible, I think one of the most valuable disciplines that you could possibly practice is the discipline of thinking about an attribute of God. Just pick one, live with it for a while. I spent a number of months last year thinking about God being unfathomable. And the reason why is because I never really thought about the word. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a second. A fathom is a thing that we use to measure the depth of the ocean. The ocean's big. If God's unfathomable. So just spin out on it for a while. Let it, let it soak in it, right? And we're going to mention a few towards the end of the night. So let's get into the text. We're going to walk through the text. We're looking today at Genesis 23, 24, 25, and 26. So decent bit of coverage. We're going to read most of it. Not all of it, but most of it. And again, what I want to do is to walk through the text so we can get a sense of the events that are happening, make a few comments about them, ask a few questions about them so that we just get ourselves... Remember, we're reading a story, so we want to let ourselves enter into the story. And understand what's being said and done with respect to these characters. So we'll walk through it in that way. And then um, toward the end, we'll, we'll turn our attention to, okay, so what does this have to do with us? What do we do with this, right? How does this apply? So first of all, then there's a lot of goodbyes and hellos here. The various sections of this, uh, we'll say goodbye to Sarah. Then we'll say hello to Rebecca. Then we'll say goodbye to Abraham. Then we'll say hello to Jacob and Esau. And then finally, we get um, Isaac's story itself. So first of all, chapter 23, we say goodbye to Sarah. Uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and just read the story. It's kind of weird, which is kind of fun, so let's read it. So, chapter 23, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. 
The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites, and he said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah. One of the answers to your crossword puzzle a couple weeks ago. Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it for me so that I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, listen to me, my Lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Just so you know, this is like, this is, this is Middle Eastern politeness. That's what you're saying here, by the way. Abraham knew the whole time that he was going to pay for the thing. It's just, this is the custom. This is sort of a way of demonstrating kindness toward a person. It may seem weird to us, but then again, we do weird things too. Like think about like bro handshakes. Those are weird, but we do them. Why? Because it's a way of showing kindness towards one another. So that's what's going on here. Abraham agreed to, verse 16, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the, in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Goodbye, Sarah. How will you remember Sarah? If you've been working with us through this study, how will Sarah be remembered when you think of her story? If you were speaking at her funeral or writing a line in, you know, in sort of honor, honorarium of her, what, what, what would it be? What's that? Her laugh. Oh, did you say her laugh? I love it. Her story is wrapped up in the laugh. Her story is the story of moving from the laughter of tears to the laughter of celebration. The laughter of, you can't do that, God. To the laughter of, I can't believe you brought me this joy. Good. What else? What will you remember? She's going to have a child. Yeah. Which was a miracle. And was Sarah like the coolest, most awesome, most godliest, perfect woman who ever lived? No. That's what I'll remember. God does miracles for normal people. That's good news for me. God does cool things for normal people. That's what I'd remember about her. That's what I'd say if I were writing her tombstone. Here lies Sarah, a reminder that God does cool things for normal people. Here a reminder that God turns our laughter of mocking God's word into our laughter of celebrating the fulfillment of God's promises. So a couple of things here with respect to what's going on in the context. Sarah's death is a signal that God's story is moving on. Remember, so let's not forget, Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham at the time his name was Abram. God calls Abraham and says, I want you to leave everything you know. Leave your country, your household, like your household stuff, like your father's family. I want you to go to the land I'll show you. And Abraham's like, all right, let's walk. So he starts walking. And then God shows him where to go as he's walking. And then he gets there. And he's there with his wife. And then he receives these promises. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. 
I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. And then as we go through the story, Abraham and Sarah try to follow God. Sometimes they do a decent job. Sometimes they don't. And all the while, God keeps making promises. And the primary promises are an ancestry. I will give you children, offspring, and I will give you the land. That's the story that we're talking about. So it's about offspring and it's about land. And these were like the concrete symbols of God blessing Abraham and extending this blessing to the rest of us here in the world. So when Sarah dies, this is a story. This is a sign that the story is ready to move on. Sarah did what she needed to do to provide for the continued continuance, the advancement of God's mission. She provided an heir. That's not the only reason she exists, but her death signals, okay, like Abraham has had a son with her as God promised. Therefore, she's, she's accomplished her role in God's mission and she moves on. So part of what we're, what we're doing as we look at this, part of the reason why the story is narrated is to say, move it on. We're still going. But the second and more specific part is, do you ever wonder, I don't know if you've read Genesis before, do you ever wonder though, like why so much description of the burial process? Even as I'm reading it, are you like, okay, couldn't you have said this in a couple sentences? Wouldn't that have been easy? And, and it's a great question. Why draw so much attention to like the process of obtaining a burial site for her? Why not just give it a sentence? And the reason is because it actually establishes the point. So I want you to notice how Abraham in this story is a little bit of a microcosm of Abraham's life as a whole. He enters the scene as a resident alien, a person who is present but doesn't own any property there. And he exits the scene as a property owner. So he comes into the land as one who is present, but doesn't have any official stake. And he leaves as one to whom this portion of the land has been deeded. What we're seeing here is that God is in the process of keeping this promise that the land will indeed belong to Abraham. That's why the, the, that's why the busyness, that's why the bother, that's why we talk about this so much. It establishes Abraham's property, and not only does it establish property for Abraham, it establishes property for, it's like, I don't know how to call it, we'll call it like multi, that's the word I'm looking for, multi-generational property. Why? Because it's a burial site. And if you know anything about Jewish families, especially at the time, is it wasn't so much that you would find like a spot of land, it's that you would find a cave so that all of your family and your descendants could be buried together, even now. When you buy a burial plot, typically you buy a few so that your family can like be buried there together. So not only is this now showing that Abraham owns property, it's showing that his descendants do as well. The promise of offspring and the promise of land are coming together. So the death of Sarah is meaningful for any number of reasons, but the primary point within the story is that it shows that God is doing to Abraham what he said he would do, giving him a family and giving him the land. So we say goodbye to Sarah, and then in the next chapter, uh, honestly, probably one of the coolest stories of romance in the scriptures, at least from a certain standpoint, the story of Isaac and Rebekah. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's like 67 verses long, and half of it is a repetition of the other. But let's read through the, the introduction of Rebekah into this story. Abraham was now very old, verse uh, 1 of chapter 24, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. There's that word again, he had blessed him. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my relatives and get uh, get a wife for my son Isaac. Now let me just go ahead and pause now and mention The hand under the thigh, again, weird. We actually don't exactly know why this was a custom, but then again, like, you know, when you were a kid, you remember you pricked your thumb 
and then somebody else pricked their thumb, you made a blood pact or whatever it's called. That's weird too. So it's just humanity, human culture. We have weird, who in the world, can, if I do this and you do that, why is that a thing? You know what I mean? Like why is pinky swearing a form of promise? I have no idea, but it is. So similarly, like putting the hand under the thigh, there could be a sense within the context of Abraham's story. Remember, like the physical sign of the covenant is circumcision. So it's in that general region. So it could be this sort of like before God, on whom we both depend for our well-being, I promise to do this for you. To be honest, I'm glad this is not still a thing. If you ever make me a promise, please keep your hand off of my thigh. Like... On no part of it do I want your hands. But this was the custom. So the idea is like, he's making a solemn promise here. And notice the solemn promise. Abraham says, I want you to promise me that you'll find my, uh, my son a wife and that you'll find him a wife, not from the land where I'm currently living among the Canaanites, but, uh, the, um, but the land uh, of my ancestors. So let's pick it back up. The uh, servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country that you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him 10 of his master's camels loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, verse 12. It's kind of a cool prayer. It's random, but cool. Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, filled her jar, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, "Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord," she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And after she'd given him a drink, she said, "I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink." So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord has made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring, weighing a becca, and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, born to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. And then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Now I'll start paraphrasing a little bit. The woman runs home to her family, her brother Laban, 
and also the rest of her family, and they see like the nose ring in her nose. I mean, you guys know, you're not going to not notice when your daughter comes home with a nose ring, you know what I mean? So she's got this fancy nose ring, she's got these fancy bracelets, and she shows up, and they're like, what's going on? And she tells them the story. And so as soon as this happens, Laban goes out to the men and says, come on in, why are you standing here? I have the house prepared for you. So the man went to the house. And, uh, and then they're like, eat. And the guy says, okay, I'm not going to eat until I have to say what I've come here to say. So verse 33 says, then tell us, Laban said. So verse 34, picking it up there. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly and he's become wealthy. He's given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels, camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has born him a son in her old age. And he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath and said, you must not get a wife from my son, from the Canaanites, but rather go to my master's family, my father's family and clan and get a wife. And so then the, um, the young man says, I asked my, my master Abraham, what if she doesn't come? And he told me that God will, will actually like provide for me. And then he retells what just happened. And so when I got here, I prayed and I said, God, like if Lord, if, if, if this is, if you're in this, like here, here's what I'm asking. And I asked that, I'd ask a woman for water, she'd water the camels as well. It happened. And so they're like, we can't deny it. God is in this. I'm paraphrasing now, big time. You can read the details later because they keep retelling the details. He's like, okay, God is in this. Like, we can't deny that this is the case. I want to pick back up in verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard what they had said, which is, take her and go, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her and brought uh, to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, let the young woman remain with us 10 days or so, then you may go. This part's kind of critical. But he said to them, do not detain me now that the Lord has granted success on my journey. Send me on my way so that I may go to my master. And then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with the nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. To, uh, may, you, may your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebecca and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left. <coughs> Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahairoi, this is the romantic part, for he was living in the Negev, when he went out to field one evening to meditate. He's just walking around thinking. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebecca. Talk about love at first sight. I mean, I guess it's not only romantic, it's kind of weird, but hey, that's what happens here. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That's long, isn't it? It's a lot. Rebecca's, Rebecca's apparently kind of important to the story. Some of why we'll see later on, but I want to say a couple things about it here. Let me first ask... Um, why is it so important to Abraham to get his, a wife for his son, and specifically like a certain kind of wife? That's his offspring. That's his offspring. And in that culture, that's his job. Like, I mean, I, in our culture, you feel this a little bit, you know? I want to make sure that my kids are taken care of. I want to, like, you know, make sure they get married well. In that culture, 
it wasn't the kind of situation, of course, where young people go and choose someone. It was the parent's job. And generally speaking, there's certain ways in which when it comes to, I mean, you can picture these conversations. Males have always been males and females have always been females. I mean, you can picture this conversation where the mom and dad are looking at this going, we've got to find a wife for our son. And generally speaking, the dad's going to go, well, I mean, I like this girl. Babe, what do you think? And if mama says, I don't like her, then daddy's going to find another wife, you know? Problem though, where's Sarah? She's gone. He's on his own. So part of, I think, Abraham's real quick, I got I to find him a wife, is he's all on his own now. It's his responsibility. Sarah's gone. He knows he'll be going soon. He has to secure that God's plan is going to continue. So he finds a wife to protect the line of promised blessing. Now, the other question I want to ask for now, we'll come back to Rebecca later on. Who does Rebecca remind you of? Like the whole reason I read the story is because I like this question. Who does Rebecca remind you of? So here's here's a person who is told, um, there are some people who are asking on behalf of God to take you on a long journey to marry a man that you've never met. Does it remind you of anyone? Who said that? It was whispered. Did you say that? Abraham. I think this is intentional. I want you to see this. Think about Abraham's story. God comes along and says, I want you to go. Where am I going? I'll show you when you get there. Okay, let's go. Servant comes along, says, I want you to marry a man. Who is he? Well, I'll show, I'll introduce him to you when we get there. And she says, I will go. So I just want you to notice already that like Rebecca is an Abraham-like person, which means she's a person of faith. Just put that in your back pocket. We'll come back to it in a little bit. So we say goodbye to Sarah, the matriarch of the family up to this point. We say hello to Rebecca, the matriarch of the family moving forward. And please don't miss either the romance in the story at a human level, but also God's guidance at a divine level. And then after we say hello to Rebecca, it's time for us to say goodbye to Abraham. So like, um, like Sarah before him, Abraham has done his part and it is time for him to go away. I don't know that there's a lot of details that I need to point out in this part. I just want you to note, um, yeah, let me see. Yeah, I can paraphrase this. Essentially what it says is Abraham had another wife and with her had a lot of sons and he died and they buried him in the cave of Machpelah and then here are his son's descendants. So you can read the details of chapter 25, verses 1 through 18 later. But the main point of this is, like Sarah before him, Abraham had done his part and now quietly exits the story. There's a nice symmetry to Abraham's life. 75 years with his father, 25 years without, 75 years with his son. I don't know why, it just works out that way. So here Abraham has this long life and he leaves. And his last act before he goes is to protect the line of God's promised blessing is to protect the covenant family line. And God confirms his promise to Abraham by blessing Isaac. This probably is the verse I want to read, verse 11. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. So like Sarah before him, Abraham is time to go, but in keeping with God's promise, sort of, his descendants are numerous. He's got a lot of offspring. And yet, I feel there's some tension here. Ishmael and Isaac gather together for the sake of the funeral, but when the funeral's over, now what? And so you have this question of, we know that Isaac is the one who's supposed to grow into a great nation, but of all of Abraham's children, he's the only one who doesn't have any children. So as we head into the rest of the story, I think we're supposed to be feeling some level of tension. What will happen now? 
Abraham's gone and sure, he got Isaac a wife, but currently she can't conceive. So we're in a situation once again where we're looking at God going, what are you going to do? Are you going to come through or are you not? And so we move ahead to the next portion of the story, which is, hello, Jacob and Esau. Let me pick back up and actually read a portion of this. This is the account, it's 2519, of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob, means to grab the heel, as a connotation of deceiving. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Isaac became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So here are some characters that we'll talk quite a bit about more in the next couple of weeks. Most of the themes here will recur, so we can talk about them then when they happen. For now, I just want you to notice a couple things about the entry of these two people into the story. First of all, I want you to notice that we're looking at another story of barrenness overcome by blessing. A woman who can't have birth, God is prayed to, and now the woman's able to have a baby. Another miraculous birth. Secondly, I want you to see that once again we have another story of tension between the first and second sons in which the second son will actually be the one who is the dominant player as the story moves forward. So when you look at this, what we're seeing is continuation of things previous. What we're seeing is that God is continuing to do the same kind of things for better and that there's the same kind of tension in ways that hopefully will become clear to us as we go. So, like I said, I don't want to say much about that because we'll talk more about it later and because I want to try to cover the text and get through the rest of this. So we now come to chapters 26, which is the heart of what I wanted to talk about today. Isaac and Abimelech. This is the part of Isaac's story that is, um, that is really kind of his only chapter. It's the only chapter in Genesis in which Isaac plays the primary character. And there's three quick scenes. The first scene, you'll recognize this before. Tell me if you've seen this before. So there's a famine in the land. And Isaac takes his wife and moves toward Egypt. In this case, however, God says, don't go all the way. Just stop here. So Isaac stops. And then he's looking around going, man, I have a lovely wife. You know what's going to happen? They're going to want my wife, so they're going to kill me. I have a plan. I have an idea. I will tell everyone that she's my sister. You've seen this before, right? Twice. And so he tells them, Abimelech is the leader of this territory. He tells them, this is my sister. Okay, all right. 
And then a little bit later, Abimelech is walking around and he looks inside the house and he sees him messing around. The text in the English will usually say something like caressing. Literally, the word is like playing. It's a play on Isaac's name. Isaac's name means laughter. So they're just, they're mess, they're fooling around in there. So Abimelech's like, hey, man, either you're touching your sister in ways that are weird or she's actually your wife. Why'd you lie to us? And, Ara- and Isaac is like, well, I mean, I kind of thought you were going to take my life. So I lied in order to protect it. And, and, then, and then it's like, okay, get out of here, go. And then he goes. So that's kind of the first scene. Isaac is doing the same kind of things that Abraham did. Sins of the son stick to the, sins of the father stick to the son. So for better and worse, we're we'll looking at the same kind of person. Now in Abraham's story, whenever Abraham did something foolish, what did God tend to do next? He tended to bless him. Yeah, he did good to him. Why? Because Abraham deserved it? No, but because God's that good. So now we're looking at Isaac doing something dumb. Guess what God's going to do next? He's going to bless him. Why? Your answer is as good as mine. I think it has something to do with grace. So let's pick the story up in verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of uh, his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there, but the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, the water's ours. So he named it, but they disputed. And then it goes on like that for a while. Isaac's people dig a well. The other people in the territory come and try to take it. So Isaac says, fine, you can have it. I'll go find another one. He continues this process a little bit until he finally goes up to Beersheba in verse 23. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid for I'm with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. And Isaac asked them, Why have you come to me, since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. And then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went away peacefully. That day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we found water. He called it Sheba. And to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. So, three quick scenes. You looked at one, he lies about Rebecca. You looked at the second, he thrives under God's provision. So, he's making the same foolish mistakes that his father made. I actually had a, I heard, I was reading in my study for this, and there was a guy who was arguing that these guys actually weren't making mistakes, but that in fact it was a wise decision. Because in that culture, it was the best way to keep both them and their wives safe. And I thought, oh no, have I been telling these people like the wrong thing? So I went to my resident Old Testament scholar at the college, and I was like, dude, I heard this. Like, what's going on? He's like, no, that's ridiculous. Okay, good. So they really were dumb. Okay, awesome. So it makes the same mistake Abraham makes. God blesses him in spite of his foolishness. 
And then just like Abraham, remember the original story of Abraham? So he moves into the land. He's all moved in. And then there's a famine and he goes and lies about his wife. And then even though he lied, God took care of him. And then the next thing that happened is his, all of his herds grow and he's got conflict with, his, with Lot, his nephew. And he says to Lot, okay, like you pick the land you want. You can have it. I'll take the rest. You see the same development in the story of Isaac. He lied about his wife, getting himself into foolish trouble. God gets him out of it and continues to bless him in spite of himself. And then Isaac seems to learn a little bit because like Abraham before him, he thrives. And then when he comes to a situation of conflict, he handles it peacefully. Others are blessed on account of him. That's sort of the upshot of the end of this story. So not only does Isaac now have what he has, but on account of his blessing, these people, Abimelech's people, now come to him for a treaty so that they can secure blessing as well. And all these things, like father, like son. Okay, I want to move on. Uh, The reason I take you through all of that is so that we can get to this next portion. I want to move on to what we can learn from this for today. So if you have any questions about the meaning of the text, I took a little longer than I intended, so you're going to have to ask me afterwards afterwards, because I want to get on to the rest of this stuff that's a bit more direct and practical. So what we learned from our ancestors. I have one, two, three, four, five things for you. I'll spend a little bit more time on the first two. From Abraham, we learn the importance of holiness. We've talked about holiness as a character attribute of God. Holiness means that God is what? Different. He's other. He's not like us. And then like God, we are called to be holy, which means we are called to be different. I'm thinking specifically about Abraham's demand that a wife be obtained for Isaac, not from the Canaanites among whom he was currently living. Now, at the time of Abraham, you wouldn't typically refer to these people as Canaanites. So why does the text refer to them as Canaanites? Because by the time these stories were being told as they passed down from generation to generation, and when they were gathered together in the form of a book and read over campfires to future descendants of Israel, they were called Canaanites. And their primary role in the biblical story is they're the people who live around Israel and constantly try to tempt Israel to turn their back on God. So calling them Canaanites is a signal that these are people who worship other gods and they consistently try to pull us away from the worship of our God. And so when Abraham says, you must find a wife for my son that is not from among these people, what he's recognizing is that Isaac and his family must be different. Now I want you to think about this for a couple of reasons. One, because as our culture becomes increasingly... um, I don't, what's the word? I don't want to use a word as strong as hostile. As our culture moves increasingly further away from God's design for, for human life, let me put it that way, you are going to have to become more and more comfortable being different for your own sake and for the sake of your children. For some of us, it's probably fairly easy for us to walk into a room. I don't know if it is or not. Maybe it is. For some of us, it's fairly easy for us to walk into a room and to realize, I don't believe the same things as anybody else in the room, and that's okay with me. I hope you've gotten there. For some of us, it's hard. But for many of us, we're there. You know, at the end of the day, I know what I believe. I know why I'm okay. It's a whole other thing to look into the eyes of a little tiny person, whether your child, grandchild, or even if you don't have kids, somebody in the church that you're maybe teaching children's church or trying to pour into, and to say, you've got to understand you're different. You're, you don't believe what like a lot of the people around you believe. You think that God has revealed his character and will to us. We think that we, we're different. So I, I need us to think about this because I think we need to be prepared to be different. We need to be prepared to be weird. 
We need prepared to be odd. And secondly, I want you to think about this because I want you to see that being different is not just for the sake of itself. Abraham knew that Isaac needed to be separated from the world around him because that was the only way he was going to be a faithful blessing to the world around him. Does this make sense? So like you and I are called to be different, but not out of hatred, rather out of love. We're called to look at people who may be calling us backwards or bigots or on the wrong side of history or you know, traditionalists in a negative sense or any of the number of things that you might find someone saying about you. And we understand like, no, I don't care what you say. Like, no offense, I'm I'm, like, even if you don't say this, I'm thinking, I don't care what you say. What you say is irrelevant to what I believe because I believe it for reasons that have nothing to do with whether or not you agree with me. So I'm going to be different from you. I disagree with you. I don't think that what you believe is true. But we have to always recognize that our, our, our resistance to the world around us is not driven by a desire to prove our own self-righteousness or to be better than somebody else. It's driven by our desire to reach those very people from whom we must differ. Am I making sense here? We got to be different for the sake of those from whom we separate. We have to separate in certain ways. Not go and live in a ghetto. No, like Abraham isn't saying, get my son out of here. He specifically says, don't take my son out of here. This is where I want my son because this is where God wants my, I'm not trying to like pull him away from these ungodly influences. They're here and he's staying, but there's a certain sense in which I want to protect him from them so as to reach them. You can see the relevance to our own lives today. Uh, Secondly, we learn from Abraham's servant, also from Isaac, and also from Rebekah. From them, we learn to rely, that is, to pray. I was trying to choose between these two words, and I decided I didn't need to choose, because part of the point of the text is to rely on God and prayer. Like, relying is the attitude, prayer is the activity. From Abraham's servant, Isaac, and Rebekah, we learn to rely on God, that is, to pray. Let me give you the basic formula that I see in here, in their prayers. Um, It just so happens that it sort of rhymes. Ask, wait, celebrate. Okay, that's easy to remember. Ask, wait, celebrate. So think about Abraham's servant. He asked, all right, God, I've been sent on this mission by your servant Abraham. So please do this for me. And then he waited. He didn't have to wait very long in this case. I mean, while he's praying, Rebecca's walking up. And he goes, okay, so I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink of water? And then he waits and he watches. And she gets him a drink of water. Then she gets the camels, and he just steps back and he watches, he waits. And then he asks some questions to try to find out if she meets the qualifications that Abraham has set out. And indeed she was, she does. So he bows down before the Lord right there in that moment. This guy, it would be, maybe this is, I haven't actually looked this up. Maybe this isn't as strange as it seems, but like if any of you just on a regular basis, like bow down on your knees, on your face, like if out in the lobby, you come out after the sermon and I'm standing off the side and you're talking to Mark and you're like, hey man, I just really appreciate the word you get today. I just want to get down, praise God, you know, like that'd be kind of odd. This guy just keeps bowing down before people because he keeps celebrating the fact that God's listened to his prayer. Ask, wait, celebrate. That's what he does. Now here's the difference. Isaac and Rebecca asked. Isaac and Rebecca asked. In Abraham's story, Abraham asks God. Sarah tries to figure it out on her own. We're making progress here. Isaac and Rebecca asked and they waited. And they had to wait a little bit longer. The text almost makes it seem like Isaac prayed, all right, Lord, open her womb. All right, babe, let's go for it. Okay, cool, you're pregnant. No, it didn't work like that. No, there was about 20 years 
between the asking of the prayer and the receiving of the fulfillment. That's a long time. Now remember what we do when we see years in the book of Genesis. We do the math a little bit. I did the math a little bit because most of us... Um, so that's... Let me put it this way. That's uh, 7,300 days, 7,300. Uh, digging down a little bit further, that's 175,200 hours. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't usually count my prayer times by days or hours. I usually count them by minutes, if I'm being honest. Maybe you're super spiritual and you pray like 14 hours a day. Not true for most of us. Most of the time, we count our prayers by minutes. Now, I'm not suggesting that Isaac and or Rebecca was praying every minute of every day, open her womb. But I would imagine it was probably pretty close to every waking moment. When you want something like that, that bad, you just rarely aren't thinking about it, at the very least in the back of your mind. So I did a little bit more math and discovered that we're talking about 10,512,000 minutes. That's 20 years. So if you figure they were sleeping for you know, eight of those, maybe they were doing something else for a quarter of their wake time, that's still 5 million minutes. That's a lot of waiting. And I hope that comes across to you not as like a, well, dang, but as an encouragement. If you've asked God for something, it may take five million minutes, but he hears you. Ask, wait, and then we celebrate. So that's what we learned from these people with respect to prayer. Now, on the celebrate thing, let me mention this. I don't know about you, but um, sometimes we forget that we've, um, sometimes we forget that we've asked for something. And so when God does it, we don't give him proper glory. Do you ever do this? I think I do this. Sometimes it's in the negative. Like I've asked, I don't know why we do these things, but you say things like, all right, Lord, teach me patience. And then he starts teaching you patience and you're like, what is wrong with the world? You know what I mean? Or here's another scary one. All right, Lord, teach me humility. Or here's an even scarier one. All right, God, I don't know what I need to do to grow in my faithfulness to you, but whatever it is, like, do it, man. Do it. You got my everything. <laughs> He's like, okay. <laughs> so there's that sense in which, and then it like you're going through the types of experiences that are necessary to get you where you asked him to take you, but you've forgotten. There's also the, God, would you do this, this positive thing? And it may take a while, and then it happens, and you're like, oh man, I'm just so lucky. No, you're not lucky. Like, God listened to you. And here's the thing, not to get all like draconian or whatever, but like I think sometimes God will withhold the positive answers because we've forgotten that we prayed for this thing. And it's not that he's being mean. It's not like, well, I can't do this for you because you're not going to give me proper glory. And I like proper glory. It's not like a glory hound sort of thing. But God recognizes that one of the worst things he could do for you is let you think that you're in control of everything. And so, I mean, I don't know what you got to do here. Maybe you got to write down your prayers. Maybe this is what I should do. Just keep a log of the things I've asked God so that I can properly celebrate. That's the formula for prayer that we learned from these people. Ask, wait, celebrate. Uh, those are, that's what we learned from, again, Abraham's servant, Isaac, and Rebecca. The other three I'll just mention and to move on so that we have enough time to talk through the attributes of God, and then I'd love to have some time for questions at the end, though I'm not making any promises. From Rebecca, we learn to be ready. This is where she looks like her father-in-law. She was just going out to get a drink of water. And she didn't expect it on this day 
what she was doing as she did on every other day was going to be a day when she actually found out that God had a plan for her to move hundreds of miles and marry a man she'd never met? She reminds me of the Virgin Mary. I mean, she didn't ask to have a dream where an angel told her, by the way, you're going to have a baby. And she said, by the way, you need a biology lesson. (laughs) No, she said, may it be to me as you have said. Rebecca says, I will go. I love this. I will go. Ready. Now, I don't know what it means to be ready for you. And again, sometimes one of the things I like about Mark is sometimes he'll just say these general principles and then let the Spirit apply this to each individual person. Maybe being ready for you is actually about physically going somewhere for a short time or a long time. Maybe being ready for you is about a relationship in your life. I don't know what it might mean for you. Maybe being ready for you is there's a question that you may be asked three or four months from now about the faith, and today, currently, you wouldn't be able to answer it. But you just can't stop thinking about this one particular aspect of Christianity. You can't get it out of your head. Maybe like God has it in your head because he wants you to search it out and understand it so that three months from now, when somebody at work asks you for an answer about it, you're ready. I I, I really don't know. These are the kind of things God does, though. So like Rebecca, from her, we learn to be ready. From Esau, we learn to think beyond what I want right now. I'd like like to think this was just a child thing. And it is a child thing. I'd like to to date the most epic knockdown drag out with my son yesterday that I've ever had. He's in that zone. Claire went through this zone too, where like just absolute screaming fits, like we're praying against demons and whatever else might be going on, you know, like, Lord, what is happening with this child? Yesterday, man, I'm battling this kid. I mean, I was so, I was like red hot. I like took off, I'm so, I'm like taking off my clothes, like sweating right now. It's not even hot outside, but I'm just ticked, right? Because I'm like, dude, and it was just something little, like there was a tissue on the ground that I told him to throw away. And he's like, I don't want to throw it away. And I'm like, brother, I do not care what you want. Your desires do not matter to me right now. Do what I told you to do, you know? You get in these moments where, and here's here's the reason I bring it up. One, probably for therapy's sake, but um, you can rebuke me for that later. No, but really, here's the reason I bring it up. Because you know what he kept saying? I don't want to right now. Yeah, exactly. So you get it. I wish it was just true of children. From Esau, we learn, you know the story I'm talking about, right? Like he comes in, he's the eldest son, which means he is the one who naturally would, would like take charge of the family and move the thing forward. And he comes in and he's hungry. He can't be that hungry. He's hungry. And Jacob's like, I got some stew. <laughs> just sell me your birthright. Just give me some stew. Nope, sell me, just say it. Say, you'll sell me your birthright. <sighs> Smells so good. And he's like, what's it to me? You can have it. And so he despised his birthright just because he wanted what he wanted right now. From Isaac, we learn to open the necessary avenues to receive God's blessing. This is the part of the story that was new for me. I didn't really understand the significance of all the opening up of the wells. Isaac goes around and he's opening up the old wells that Abraham has opened in the past. And when those get messed up, he's like, all right, fine, I'll open some other wells. I'll find them, open some other wells. What, the, what is the deal with the wells? And as I was studying this, I realized um, that the point of this is you, God, yeah, these avenues, that's the word there, avenues for God's blessing. Like the water underneath the earth is nothing but a pure gift of God. Like literally, we don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have like an under earth piping system that's responsible for the water down there. God put it there. All we have to do is tap into it. And within the story of Isaac, the point of all these opening of the wells is showing that Isaac will indeed receive the blessings that God gave his father Abraham. 
And when somebody tries to stop that from happening, Isaac will get blessings from God elsewhere. And I think the lesson for us might be like, op- like open up the wells, figuratively speaking. There's all sorts of avenues for God's blessing. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I want to commend you when I was talking to Brad about this before tonight, every time I come here, I'm not necessarily shocked because I think the Bible's awesome too. And I think there's a lot of reasons why y'all come, but I, I just love that you come. Not for my own sake, but here you are, like there are a number of things you could do with your evening that don't involve sitting and listening to somebody talk at you about what an ancient book means for an hour and a half or so. And yet you decide to be here. I think you're opening up a well. You're opening up an avenue to divine blessing. It may be that you go and you're like, man, I, you know, I was kind of wondering the same thing. <laughs> I don't know when, when you're going to drink that water, but at some point you'll say, I found water. And these are actually the moments I live for as a teacher, the moments when you come to me, and you don't usually use these words, but you say, I found water tonight. Thank you. So there are other avenues. Again, you could list them as well as I could. If you're not serving anybody in your life, that's an avenue of God's blessing. Open up that well. If you're not regularly interacting with the scriptures, that's an avenue of God's blessing. Open up that well. If you're not you know, talking to God about the things going on in your day, that's an avenue of God's blessing. Open up that well. This is the picture that we get of Isaac opening up the well. So that's what we learn from his life. So we learn a couple of things from the various characters in this story. But I also want to talk and leave us with this, um, leave us with these thoughts of what we learn about God. A couple of attributes here. Some of them you mentioned. Actually, most of them you mentioned. Maybe one or two you didn't. The first one is his faithfulness. He does what he says he will do. Now, I promised you weeks ago that... I would talk about faithfulness every time the text draws attention to God's faithfulness. Do you remember that? I told you, like, I'm not just going to, like, say it once and let it go. Because I'm going to trust that if covering it was one, if covering it once was enough, then God wouldn't have inspired a book that kept making that same point over and over again. And I think the point that is made most consistently throughout the book of Genesis is God is faithful. God keeps his promises. He is fundamentally a voice you can trust to do what he says. And I don't know that I know exactly why God inspired a text that keeps drawing attention to his faithfulness. Maybe it's the fact that we're just forgetful. And if not reminded over and over again, there's a sense in which we might be tempted to think, I mean, maybe he can't be counted on. I don't know if that's why. I don't know if it's because he's invisible, so we can't actually see him. And it's hard to count on a person who you can't see. Am I right? Is this just me? It's hard to count on a person who you can't physically see with your eyes. So maybe like he knows that his faithfulness in particular is hard to believe in because of the way in which he's not present to us. I don't know why it is, but whatever the reasons are, clearly God has drawn attention again and again to the fact that he is faithful. His promises are as good as gold. His promises are faithful. You can trust him. Secondly, his sovereignty. You see this in here. His plans are not thwarted by our freely chosen foolishness. I'll point out this um, whenever we come to the last major character in the story, and I'll show you the places where this is true. I'll point you back to the text and you can see the pattern. But I find it interesting that at the beginning of every new section of the story, so like at the beginning of every new family, God predicts ahead of time, What's going to happen? He did it when we first met Abraham. He does it now when we first meet Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. He always comes and says, here's how it's going to be. 
And I think the point is not that he works out everything in detail ahead of time. The point is he sees the end from the beginning and he knows how to get where he's trying to go. He has enough power that he can accomplish his ultimate purposes, not by overriding or denying free will, but by actually working in and through it. This is the impressiveness of God's sovereignty to me. Not that he controls every little thing, but that even though he doesn't control every little thing, he can actually work through all these little things, many of which do not represent perfectly what he would want, but are what happened in a world where people are given the choice to choose against him. Even in spite of that, he can still accomplish his point. Think about, by the way, on a practical level, I forgot to mention this earlier, so let me talk about it now. When you read the Rebecca story, Clearly, like God is ordaining this process in a certain way. And so sometimes we read a story like this and think, so does God like have a a blueprint for my life so that all the details are lined out perfectly and I have to go there, I have to marry this person, have to take this job? And the answer is uh, sometimes for some people. Generally speaking, no, God doesn't say you have to marry this person, not that person, take this job, not that job. Generally, like there are times like here where God has clearly decided This is what I want you to do. And rest assured, if you're ever in a situation where God has one thing that he wants you to do, he will tell you if you listen to him. And if he's not, then what you're dealing with is him saying, you could go left or you could go right. And in the end, like my sovereignty will win. And you could even go backwards and my sovereignty will still win. But I don't recommend it because you won't necessarily come out on the right side of things. So often what God will say is if you've got five doors in front of you, he'll say, all right, close off these two. You already knew they were closed. You you understood ahead of time, like, no, those are not. But these three, go for it. And his sovereign will will be accomplished no matter which direction you take. So his sovereignty. The next one I want to mention is his wisdom. Among all of the five that I'm going to, oh, I guess I only have four, huh? Among the four that I'm going to talk through, I would actually suggest that this be one you consider bringing to the forefront of your mind. This is where his sovereignty plays out. And this is, for me anyway, maybe it's just the way I'm wired. This is, for me, a truth about God that enables me to believe a lot of the other truths about God. He is wise. What does it mean to be wise? What means you know the best goals and the best paths for reaching those goals. Or if you like philosophy language, you know the best ends and the best means to those ends. You know the best goals. You like you have enough information so that you can say, this is actually the place where we're trying to go. And you have enough information so that you can say, this is actually the best way to get there. His wisdom. And I think this is pretty important to keep in mind because he does not always do what we think he would or should. Matter of fact, he does the opposite. Do you ever just think when you're reading Genesis, why don't I just go with Ishmael? Would have been easier. He was already there. Good grief, why the trouble? Do you ever think like, why choose Jacob? Why choose the younger over the older? And why this and why that? And why do any of these other things? Why not find Isaac a wife from nearby? Maybe he can evangelize her and she can become like a holy person like him and then we could be winning already. Why do you have to do it the way you want to do it? Why is it that you keep doing things that seem strange and unfair and bizarre? And I think here in Genesis, the point is pretty clear. Because God wants you to know that the success of his mission depends on him, not you. The success of his mission does not depend on whether or not you keep your customs. The success of his mission depends on whether or not he is who he is. That's why Moses didn't get 
Why was it such a big deal to hit the rock? God says, because it was. Because I told him not to. I told him to pick up the tissue and throw it away. And he didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I didn't go to the promised land. He gets to look, but he didn't get to see. He gets to watch his sister eat chocolate cake. You know what I mean? And uh, Paul actually will deal with this directly in Romans chapter 9. If you're doing some study on your own, you can write that down. He'll point out that the reason why God chose the younger son instead of the older son actually has to do, really, with the, uh, with the final attribute. So let me say that, and then I'll come back to the last line previously. The final attribute is grace. That's why the New Testament says God chose Jacob over Esau. It wasn't because God knew Jacob was better material. It was because God wanted to do something strange so that we didn't think we earned it. God wanted to do something purely by mercy and grace so that we would understand that our salvation is not dependent on what we do, it is dependent on what God does. So taking you back to wisdom, last thing I'll say and then I'll pray for you and we'll get you out of here. God knows what you don't know and he intends to teach you what you would never figure out on your own. This is why you sometimes don't understand what he's doing. And I get it. Like belief is easier to talk about than to practice for all of us. Especially in those moments when you are confused. And when you are looking at the situation going, I think this is what you want me to do, but how in the world could this be it? Or I know this is what you call me to do, but how in the world could that be good for me? And that's why we need repeated reminders that God is faithful and sovereign and gracious and wise. Let me pray for us, then we'll be done. Father God, thanks for the opportunity to learn tonight. Pray that you bless our minds so that we might focus on the truth about you. Help us to believe it and help us to live in light of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.